Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Thursday morning, the 8th of August. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. St. Mary's University on the Falls Road in Belfast was packed out this week for the Fela on Fubble Leaders debate. Issues as expected included Brexit, restoring the Northern Executive and Assembly and a border poll. Would that result in a reunited Ireland? Possibly not. At least that was the view of Leo Varadkar who warned such a poll could be divisive and it could be defeated. The Taoiseach also warned that if a small majority voted in favour of a united Ireland, it could result in some of uh, the mistakes made 100 years ago at the time of partition being repeated, but this time the other way around, with unionists being brought into a new Ireland against their will. The Taoiseach was joined for the debate by the DUP's Gregory Campbell, the SDLP's Daniel McCrossan, the UUP's uh, Don Doug Beatty, and uh, the leader of uh, the Alliance Party, Naomi Long, as well as Brendan Smith, a Fianna Fáil TD for Kevin Monaghan, who's on the line with us now. And a very good morning to you, and thank you indeed for joining us here on the programme this morning. You would uh, agree with uh, the Taoiseach uh, to a large degree on uh, the risks involved in holding a border poll. No, what I would say is that we have a lot of preparatory work to do in advance of a border poll, but I think even though we face huge challenges at the present time in regard to the political institutions not functioning in the, in, in the executive or the assembly, we've made huge progress in the past 20, 20 plus years since the signing of the Good Friday Agreement. I made the point the other night in the context of speaking about the Good Friday Agreement and also the Brexit challenges for our islands at the present time, that we use the phrase, the all-iron economy 
economy. We use it every day of the week in our, in our daily conversations with people and in our work. 20 years ago, we didn't talk about the All-Ireland economy, but the Good Friday Agreement made it possible for the All-Ireland economy to develop. And I believe that if we work the institutions that were provided for under the Good Friday Agreement, that we can build up so much um, so much of our work on an All-Ireland basis that we're then doing the good necessary preparatory work to show what the benefits of the United Ireland will be. I, I aspire to United Ireland, but I want to ensure. My view is that we do the necessary preparatory work, that we have a referendum at the time that, that when it would um, win the support. Mm. And I have to say it was visionary, it was very forward-looking. The provision was made in the Good Friday Agreement that in the event of a majority, both in our state and in Northern Ireland, voting in favour of United Ireland, then that should happen. Which is we 50% plus one. We, uh, we, and that is uh, yeah, something but, that the Taoiseach was warning can't. against. You can understand the reason for him arguing against the, that, though, because if uh, there is only a, a small majority, there would be great resistance. Yeah, but I don't think that we, w- we, we would have the agreed Ireland, the new Ireland that we all want to see on the basis of just a head count. There's, there's, there's much more than demographics to this. We have to show the benefits of United Ireland. Mm. I just instance, we talk about the All-Ireland economy today. We talk about the interdependence between the different economic sectors on well, a North-South basis. We, we talk about a, an all-European economy as well. Would you favour well, you know, well, a United... The is a, is a, is a, is a 28 member state yes, but we, but but you, and we know what damage would be done to us by Britain exiting but, but the you, European Union. But, but would you favour a United States of Europe or, definitely or, not. Or, a, or a United States of mainland Europe? No, I do not favour any such development. Why is I there believe, an argument for a United Ireland if there isn't an argument for a United States of mainland Europe? Because we're well, talking about you, a geographical attachment as such, aren't well, we? Uh, where I am in Cavan Town, where I live, and where I where where my where where, mm. um, where I live, you don't celebrate the twelfth of July. No, but, but my, some of my neighbours do, and I have no problem with that. And and and, and I, I believe in diversity. I believe in in be in recognising the other the other aspirations that other people have. But Michael, I don't share a lot in common with people in Czechoslovakia or people in Estonia or somewhere else. I share a lot mm. in common with the people in our neighbouring counties of Mead and Louth, Monaghan, and in our neighbouring counties of Fermanagh, Tyrone, Armagh, Upton, Northern Ireland as well. So as Irish people, we have a lot in common whether we come from Antrim or Cork. We do, we, we're Europeans. We have something in common with Latvia and Estonia, but where I'm not aspiring to the United States of Europe, I think that would be disastrous. We, we need to retain all our own national identities. But you take it, Michael. Well, I mean, there's a, a very obvious divide down the road here. Some people supported uh, King Billy, Billy so others uh, King William, and that's what it goes back to. Yeah, but Michael, I remember 1998 in the lead up and, and, and the lead up to the signing of the Good Friday Agreement. We were told for instance, that there would be constitutional issues. How could some people in Northern, buy, buy Northern Ireland buy into the idea of all-Ireland bodies? Well, thankfully, there were six all-Ireland bodies established under the Good Friday Agreement. Those implementation bodies go about their daily work now. Nobody questions mm. their, their functioning. Nobody questions their status. Nobody questions whether they're favouring one community over the other.
other. They're going on, they're doing good work on behalf of every community throughout this country. And what, I, what I'm sadly, what I, what I am disappointed is that we haven't maximised the potential of the Good Friday Agreement. There was always provision made for more all-Ireland bodies in the area of health provision, um, education provision, in the area of trade promotion, the area of business promotion, and an all-Ireland context. We need to be doing more of that and demonstrating to everybody, nationalist and unionist, the benefits of all of Ireland working together. And Michael, but I remember why should we do that when unionists say, you're wrong, you're completely wrong, we don't identify with you. You might identify with us uh, when we celebrate the 12th of July, Brandon Smith, but we don't identify with you on St. Patrick's Day. Uh, and well, just just, be, Michael, just, St. Patrick's Day is a big day throughout, throughout Northern Ireland as, as it for, is. For unionists? No, but no, nobody, no, I'm talking nobody about, objects to, to No, but I'm saying that unionists wouldn't identify with St. Patrick's Day uh, and they might be surprised to hear you say that you can identify with the 12th of July and perhaps you'd be happy to march with them uh, but no no I have no intention of marching on the 12th of July okay. no whatsoever but I respect people who go and march on that day and the people will respect me when I when I go to my Gaelic football match or my Gaelic hurling match or to a handball mm. game they'll respect that it's all about well they may or they may they may or may, they may not uh, but just so because there need to be outliers on, our, on, on every side of an argument there will be people who won't show respect and that comes from both communities but the one thing that they, we have to they, 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 show respect to one another. They might say you're being disrespectful because you're going back so far in history that you're claiming that their state is part of our country, which is long in the past. And if you were to make that country, that that, that uh, argument because of the fact that we're on the same island, uh, well then perhaps uh, there's a better argument for other places in the world. For example, parts of Spain, uh, North Spain and South France uh, should be reunited, but they've given up that, it would seem, in the well, Basque well, that's, country. That's their own argument, and I won't be telling the people of the Basque region who they should show their identity or the people of Barcelona who they should show their identity but, to. But, Michael, but when it comes with Commonality. When it comes to a commonality in heritage, religion, culture, language, uh, you're talking about much more unification in places like that, where there, the, the the fight for reunification has been given up. Uh, Michael, you might recall as well, and our readers will recall that members of the Presbyterian community were were very good, strong Irish advocates, going back hundreds of years, actually, and very good proponents of the Irish language as well. We we ignore that at times, but you said I was going back in history, Michael. No, I, I said I, I, no, I, I, I said I didn't. No, no, no. Voted overwhelmingly I, I, I have to stress. North and South in favour of the Good Friday Agreement. I'm sorry, so Brendan Smith. I must not maximising the potential <laughs> okay. of that agreement. I made you get out of the car park, never mind home, if you say I said that. I didn't say that. I was suggesting to you that that might be an argument that unionists would put forward against the idea of United Ireland. But, Michael, this, this is not about imposing views on people. This is about convincing people of the merits of us going forward together. I aspire to United Ireland. There are people who don't, and I respect their viewpoint. But what I believe is that if we went with the idea of a border poll just now on the basis of a head count, that wouldn't be successful for Ireland of the future. What a huge amount of preparatory work has to be done. And if there was ever a lesson for people in regard to the holding of referenda is the British one, where they did no preparation. They did mm. not inform people of the realities of what Brexit would mean. And we see the chaos that's there today. And when you have a Prime Minister in Britain talking that the solution to the backstop 
issue that 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 that's a that's a big bone of contention on the British side, but it's one that has to remain to protect Ireland's interests. Prime Minister Johnston's solution to the backstop issue is to use technology that doesn't exist. Now, would that fill the people of Ireland with confidence? No, would it? of course not. Sure, he's only letting on. He's electioneering. Uh, he doesn't yeah, mean it's, that. It's yeah. very serious for our country. And, oh, and I, I know. Have to say, Michael, it's we called know, grandstanding, isn't it? It is, but it's yeah. very, you're getting mm. you're getting down to deadlines. And you, recently, the British Institute of Government did a report in regard to Brexit and the No Deal Brexit. And the very clear message from that report mm. was that a No Deal Brexit would be felt much more acutely in Northern Ireland than anywhere than in any other than in than in Britain. Okay, so but the reality. Was, okay, you, you you've probably come to the nub of the issue here because the reality is is that he's gearing up for an election. He's hoping to get a majority. He's hoping that when he gets that majority, he won't need the support of the, the 10 DUP MPs through their confidence and supply. He'll uh, sell them out. Uh, he'll agree to a deal with a backstop for Northern Ireland only. If that is the case, the Taoiseach says, well, there's some Liberal Unionists and some Liberal uh, Protestants who might decide uh, the bread is buttered on the other side of the border. Yeah, well, if, if, if you're quoting the Taoiseach there as, as yep. advocating that they would be in favour of it. Yep. Well, I tell you, there's, a, there's a good few hurdles to be overcome before that, but we have the, the 31st of October to deal with, and that's the issue. I, I was speaking to people, to neighbours in Fermanagh the mm. other day, people who are, who are in farming, people who are in small mm. business and that. What they are focused on is the immediate difficulties that would confront them and us as their neighbours. Yeah, Boris could go to the polls. No Brexit. Boris could go to the polls on the 12th. engage with the border communities are too understanding mm. of the difficulties that faces us. Well, and the reality I, that thankfully today we do not have a border in mm. Ireland as we go about our daily business. I imagine Boris isn't particularly aware of the 12th of July, but he, he might go to the polls on the 12th of October and get there before the 31st of October and get this extension to allow him come to this stage where there'll be a deal. If he sells the DUP out and the Taoiseach is right, uh, that it would result in a border poll and some unionists might vote for a United Ireland, it would seem that the Taoiseach is speaking out of both sides of his mouth. He's saying the time is not now and the time might be now. Yeah, well, you've asked the Taoiseach that, um, but, um, but what I'm focused on, and, and uh, I, I think all of us need to be totally focused on, is the difficulties um, that will face our island if there's a no-deal Brexit, and the government needs to be ramping up preparations in relation to that, because because if you take in any area of activity, you take the agri-food industry, it's hugely important to loud me, Kevin Mann, into your listenership area, and you take the dependence of the farming community in the agri-food sector on the all-Ireland economy because we know some of our product travels north to be processed, product travels south to be processed and vice versa. So, so we have a huge interdependence in the agri-food sector on, 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 on north-south cooperation and north-south business um, collaboration. Now, we would face huge difficulties if there's not a deal come the 1st of November in how, say, the agri-food industry, the farming community would go about their daily business and that would not just affect farmers. Mm. We know in the largest towns in the four counties that I mentioned, all of them have substantial agri-food processing sectors where there are huge numbers implied. There would be a huge negative knock-on effect on that sector if there's a no-deal Brexit. That's what every ounce of government energy needs to be devoted to at the present time to ensure that how do we minimise that disruption. Hopefully there won't be that disruption, but every utterance from Mr Johnston and all his government members seems to be that they're hurling forward
forward as rapidly as they could towards a no-deal Brexit, and we know what the consequences of that will be. The other speaker uh, was Mary Lou MacDonald, who disagreed uh, with uh, yourself and the Taoiseach and said the time now is right for a border poll, but uh, she, uh, along with yourself and the other people I mentioned, made up uh, that panel of what uh, was undoubtedly of great attraction. That's why St Mary's University was uh, so packed out. Uh, some very heavy hitters. Uh, which of the panel did you admire most? Oh, I didn't. I, I said that um, we you were asked, asked that, yes. uh, in the context of um, your your political opponents, and naturally that was the, the represent the leader of Fine Gael and the leader of Sinn Féin with the two. Um, uh, Two political opponents, from my point of view, and that that, that, that we we compete for votes in this country. I said that they are both party leaders, and I I'm in a position much below their pay grade, and sure I couldn't try to compare with those people. Okay, well, I think uh, if I read it correctly in the Irish Times the other day, the Taoiseach Leo Varadkar said the person on the panel he admired most was Brendan Smith. He's an astute person in, in making that judgment, Michael. I'm sure, I'm sure you'd agree with him on that. Well, yes, I should explain to people that he said that the reason he admired you most of <laughs> was because it was you and your party Fianna Fáil that helped him to become the Taoiseach. Yeah, well we took a very responsible position because there was, we put forward Michael Martin three occasions to, to, to for the office of Taoiseach and he didn't get the required vote. Other parties such as Sinn Féin and them ran for the hills. Okay, we'll leave there for the moment. Thank you very much indeed uh, for joining us uh, this Thank morning. You. Brendan Smith, Fianna Fáil TD for Cavan Monaghan. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. No caps on how much rent can be increased by won't be introduced until next week, which has led to, to the headline on the front page of uh, the Irish Independent today, which reads, Incompetent Murphy Let Colleges Duck Rent Pressure Zone Rules. Let's talk about this with Kevin Doyle, who's group political editor with INM, Independent News and Media. And we should stress uh, that the incompetent part of uh, the headline is uh, quoting uh, Fianna Fáil's uh, spokesperson on housing, uh, Dara O'Brien, uh, who has uh, said uh, that this is uh, the result of Owen Murphy's incompetence. And as uh, the headline inside the paper says uh, quite accurately, Owen Murphy is in the firing line over this. Yeah, Michael, it's, it's, it's kind of extraordinary when you actually read into the detail because um, essentially they flagged the fact that there was going to be rent caps brought in um, and thereby gave the colleges uh, several months, well, 10 weeks really, almost three months, uh, to make whatever changes they were going to make. So it, it seems that they thought it would be uh, a good idea to bring them in on the same day that the CAO offers are going out. But of course, mm. any parents who have children of Leaving Cert know that they tend to start looking long before the CAO results come out because that's the kind of market that we live in at the minute. And very often people will put down deposits long before they get the Leaving Cert results in the hope that... Uh, they did well on the day. And uh, the type of increases, as you reported in the Irish Independent yesterday, for on-campus accommodation are up to 11%. Yeah, it's extraordinary. If, if you go around the country, um, you have, you have it, it varies. But in Cork, for example, you had 11.5% uh, for one of the college uh, houses down there that's owned by UCC. Um, in parts of Dublin, you're looking at anywhere between 1% and, say, 5 6 percent uh limerick uh six percent um galway four percent so it it is pretty much it is it is every university that has its own accommodation has raised its prices which is extraordinary in itself um and the prices vary depending on which city you want to go to 
Uh, are the colleges in a, a corner of sorts and feel that they have no choice but to increase uh, rents uh, by these uh, amounts? I mean, I've heard students uh, say, look, we're not commodities. Uh, we're people and we should be treated uh, with uh, some respect and fairness. Uh, but I'd have always thought that colleges would endeavour to treat their students as well as they can possibly do. Well, I suppose there's, a, there, there's two ways of looking at it. Uh, their colleges aren't charities either, and they would argue that they have to maintain these buildings, they have to provide security, maintenance, all the rest of it, um, and that there are costs associated with this. Um, on the flip side, there is an argument that they have a duty of care to their students. Um, but these are businesses, colleges are under pressure for funding, and this is a landlord's market at the minute. I mean, that's very obvious in the private sector, and it seems that the colleges don't see that they are a whole lot different from the private sector. They are renting rooms, they are renting properties, um, and for that they get a good price. Mm. And incompetent, uh, the Fianna Fáil verdict, uh, but uh, as you say, uh, the minister is coming under fire across uh, the board. Uh, criticism from all of uh, the political parties. You've been speaking with Labour's Jan O'Sullivan as well as Ono Brin of Sinn Féin. Yeah, lining up really to criticise mm. the, the minister. Janice Sullivan was making the point, and this I think is quite interesting if you look at the history of this, which was that the Oireachtas passed these rent caps uh, last May, so before the dull summer break. And she claims that the opposition backed that on the understanding that it would protect students for the coming academic year. Um, and therefore... Uh, she wants the minister to explain how it is that the colleges were allowed to do this in the meantime. Omar Brin having more so a go at the university, saying it's a cynical attempt on them to circumvent the new rent pressure zone rules that were brought in. Now, I've spoken to people in the Department of Housing and that the understanding that they put to this is that basically the laws, yes, were introduced in May, but it was only once those laws were actually passed by the Dáil mm. that the uh, Residential Tenancies Board, who looks after all of this and enforces this, could actually start to hire new staff and systems that didn't exist. Um, and they effectively had 10 weeks to register every college uh, accommodation place in the country, which is around 30,000. Mm. Um, and so basically, it, they're saying that uh, 10 weeks was an extraordinary quickly, quick time to actually achieve this. Uh, but obviously, it seems that it was useless for the coming year. It'll, ha- it'll take effect from next year. But even at that, colleges will still be able, to, and, and any landlord in these uh, student accommodations, will still be able to put rents up by 4% again next year if they want. And is this criticism of the Minister fair, do you think, Kevin, in that the Minister would have introduced the legislation, but as you say, it was passed by the Dáil. Were any amendments uh, proposed to the effect that would have prevented this? Well, Fianna Fáil argued that they actually brought forward a similar bill in 2018, but the government wouldn't back it. Now, that's not an unusual scenario. <coughs> Excuse me, Michael. Um, and they argue that if, if the government had rode in with the bill that they brought forward in this area uh, in 2018, well, then it would have been in place in time uh, and that this issue wouldn't have arisen now. So they say the minister lost a year by not backing them. And uh, very often the government prefer to do things their own way than back legislation from the opposition who would then get to take credit from it. Um, I think, to be fair, there, there is an argument here that this should have been seen coming. Um, the yes, the colleges could have put up their prices at any stage. It's not like they all sat down this week and decided. And a number of the colleges yeah. have claimed that they had projected their price increases two, three years ago and that this is an ongoing process. They don't just sit down uh, in, in the middle of July or August and decide we're putting our rents up for the year ahead, that it's much much more planned out than that. Well, you um, heard from UCC directly who told you they started this process of reviewing what students pay in March of last year, March 18. Yeah, exactly. Mm. And several of the other colleges 
um, who were part of this survey have have claimed the same thing that mm. that, that this is a multi-year strategy rather than a, a, a an annual one, um, and and I suppose that's probably true in fairness to them. But um, I think from the government's point of view, if this was foreseeable, it wasn't stopped, and therefore Old Murphy is in the firing line on this as he is in so many other areas when it comes to housing at the minute. Well, that's uh, the truth. Uh, but uh, do the opposition parties not, uh, or should they not, take some responsibility for not foreseeing it uh, if it was foreseeable? Well, that's a question too, and that's a very, very fair question. I mean, Janice Sullivan seems to be suggesting that she was somewhat duped um, and hadn't foreseen this. Um, Sinn Féin suggesting to some extent that the colleges have gone outside the spirit of the law, that they, they mm. have uh, purposely tried to, to, to dodge it by, by jumping the gun or getting in ahead of the, the introduction date of August 15th. Um, and Fianna Fáil, as I said, arguing that they did try to do something about this. But you're right, there, there is probably a wider look here at how this was allowed to happen. And I, I take it the minister, uh, while he may not be saying it, must be feeling somewhat duped himself. I think so. I mean, he, he, he hasn't, and we gave him plenty of opportunity yesterday to criticise the universities or to suggest that they had uh, acted outside the, the spirit of the law. But basically, on the record, the, the spokesperson for the minister is saying that they brought the legislation in as quickly as they could. They'll take effect on the same day that students are offered their college places um, and that the plan was that it would be in for the academic year and that's what he's done. Mm. OK, but I, I take it if uh, students are lucky enough to get on-campus accommodation, they'll probably be paying far less than they would uh, in uh, the private rental sector. Well, I don't know that that's entirely true. Because, right. Um, it, it, it's hard to tell, I suppose, because students are renting different types of accommodation and obviously some people share houses and some people will... Uh, get bed sits and, and and some people will go into digs, but the some of the prices are quite eye watering. Um, like I'm looking Larkfield in DCU, which I stayed in myself about 15 years ago, um, and I couldn't tell you what the price was back then, Michael. But <laughs> yeah, sure. it's now five thousand six hundred and sixty-five euro, and and from memory for that, you get a very small kitchenette, which is shared with another person, a tiny bathroom, and a single bed and a, and a small table. Okay. Um, which for that price seems uh, very, very little, shall we say, for a college term. Remember, you're not even getting that for 12 months. But you can go right up the line to to UCD has some of the most expensive ones. Uh, Roebuck Castle is €11,500, which is just extraordinary. Now, for that, you share uh, an apartment with 12 other people. Um, Now, you have a kitchen and a living room and all that, but it is shared with 12 people, and that is a mortgage mm. for an awful lot of people. Eleven and a half thousand euro uh, for the college term is extraordinary money. So mm. I think, that, 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 look, there's probably a premium to be paid for, if we're being honest about. It. And I think a lot of parents would like their their young students to be on staying campus, on campus yeah, because yeah. it tends to be safer, and yeah. you tend to make the early morning classes yeah. uh, if we're honest about it. But there is a premium to be paid for it. Okay. Well, uh, obviously, so based on those prices, listen, Kevin, we leave it there for the moment. And thank you very much indeed for joining us this morning. Kevin Doyle, Group Political Editor with INM Independent News and Media. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, let's talk about uh, the things that dogs do and uh, the things that people don't do or how people don't pick up after their dogs. Louth County Council says over the past 20 years, great strides have been made in tackling the issue of dog fouling in public places. A statement from the council says we are down to a small percentage of people who don't pick up after their dog. Catherine Duff, Director of Services with Louth County Council, is on the line. And I'm sure, Catherine,
Catherine, there's people listening to us now who are saying you must be having us on. Uh, no, Michael, in fairness, there, there has been a change, a cultural change over the years with regards to how people um, deal with dog poo. I suppose years ago, people certainly never carried um, bags for picking up their dog poo. And most people are compliant and most people are aware of the issues. But we do have now a number of people that are, what I say, resistant to the cultural changes that other people have taken on board. Right. When you say a small percentage, how many are you talking about? Well, it's hard to quantify. Yeah. I suppose what we see is the evidence on the street mm. uh, rather than the actual numbers of people. So it's dreadful, isn't it? It is. And I suppose yeah. it probably has become... And there's a lot clearer. of it, isn't there? Well, it has become clearer because we have got better with regards to how we are cleaning our streets and people have got better in the context of, of with the help of the, the Tidy Towns and the Irish Business Against Litter League um, with regards to how our streets are presented. So the actual dog poo is more evident. And in fairness, there's probably more dog owners as well. I know you are having us on. <laughs> really? That, Sorry? That, you Now you must no. be having us on. No. But, well, you're trying to tell me that, but people listening to the programme see it because we're doing a better job about it. No, uh, because the streets are actually cleaner. But we're trying to raise away... I don't think they are. Yeah, yeah. I don't think they are cleaner. You don't think the streets are cleaner? Yeah, and that's probably because yeah. the council resorts to gimmicks in terms of responding to this. No, in fairness, that isn't fair. And it's not fair to the people who are out there who are working continuously to try and improve that. How so many people are out there working continuously to try and improve it? Well, in fairness, the public and the community groups and the council are all working towards a better community. What does the council do? Ourselves. What does the council do, apart from the gimmicks like the graffiti that you've put up recently? Oh, well, the... the, the Council actually cleans actual streets as well as our community groups. Yeah. It's a working together, Michael, trying to present how our place are. Well, a lot of people give out and about the streets lot- not being cleaned, and especially the streets and the estates not being cleaned. Yeah, well, there are, there, in fairness, there are areas mm. that are better than others, but we are certainly working towards a better presentation. And I suppose the fact that Lamp has done so well in Tidy Town competition nationally reflects that. But my, the, what I'm trying to do here is improve things. And in fairness, we're trying to raise awareness with regards to dog style. Mm, well, we do that all of the time here on the radio as well. And quite yeah. often when we're doing it on the radio, we ask, what does the council do? Why does the council never find anybody? Why does the council not do its job in relation yeah. to this? No, well, the council is doing its job, but it's a double... In fairness, it's um, two sides of the equation here. There's the issue of the awareness and there's the issue of enforcement. And mm. both are needed. In fairness... Well, um, well, well what enforcement is there? In fairness, Michael... To tackle these issues and to tackle behaviour change, you need two strands. You need to be able to raise awareness well, and you yeah. need to enforce. So the community raises awareness, the radio station raises awareness, lots of people raise awareness. What does the council do about enforcing the laws? The council enforces the laws by having awards and the help of the public, which we're trying to get on board here. We're trying to teach people to actually get on board with us and to actually report. And some people actually do give us witness statements, which is the most I'm, I'm sorry, Catherine, way of getting getting enforcement. It's just a, sorry Catherine, it's a little bit, Catherine, sorry, it's just a little bit difficult to hear you. I think you're speaking to the side of the mouthpiece there. Okay, sorry. sorry, Go ahead, yeah. Yeah, I didn't mean to interrupt you, it's just we couldn't hear what you were saying. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, uh, the area of enforcement is, is, is actually one of our other tools which we are actually pursuing as well. And regards to enforcement, it is difficult because it's not like a, a parking ticket where the car is there and you have the reg number. It is much, much more difficult because in France you have to actually 
Um, witness the dog actually yeah. in the act. Which means you have to have wardens. It's more difficult. You have to have and wardens we, looking yeah. out for it, and you don't. Uh, so you've resort, you've resorted, you've resorted to graffiti. No, we certainly haven't resorted to graffiti, Michael. We have resorted to a campaign, which at first was. Sorry, losing you again, Catherine. Can't hear you. Sorry. We are not resorting to graffiti and fairness, Michael. And you're, you're painting the sidewalks, aren't you? You're, you're, you're using yeah. stencils to paint the sidewalks. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and aren't they good? Do you not think they're good, Michael? In fairness, we've got a lot of positive feedback, and it came from other initiatives that were abroad. And we actually have, in fairness... Well, I think there's lots of graffiti that's good, but the, the yeah. picture, pictures of dog pooing, I, I don't know. Yeah. No, they're a limit. They're, in fairness, it's a limited yeah. campaign. It's, in fairness, what we are trying to do is raise awareness. There are... You have to constantly change the, the, initiative, uh, the, the, the initiative and the focus of the attack and the focus of the awareness campaigns to make, to make a difference. And I would agree that you can't just keep doing the same thing. Mm. And it is a two-pronged attack. It is enforcement, which is the help of the wardens and of the public and of the community groups, as well as awareness. People need awareness as well as enforcement. Mm. But it is both. It's both ends of it, Michael. Yeah, why not find somebody? Yes, we do that as well, and we are keen to do that, mm. in fairness. And mm. I, what I would hope here, Michael, would be that you would encourage people to ring us in when they know about these issues, which most people do. If they ring in with the evidence, we will pursue it. How do you mean the evidence? Well, if people are aware of yeah. of, of neighbours or colleagues that are, are actually have dogs that are regularly not, doing, not abiding by what we call here, the laws, yeah. if they could give us the information, yeah. we would either either act to act as witnesses or for our wardens to pursue. This is not our mm. benefit to Okay, hold on. You're, you're saying that if people call you and tell you about yes, their neighbours, yeah, yes. you, you'll follow them, will you? We will, we will take up the information that they have got and pursue that information. And yeah. we do that. Well, you'll follow them, will you? We pursue the information that we are given. We will try and get the evidence based on the information we are given to pursue a fine. Which is what you want, Michael, I take it, that you want this resolved. Oh, sure, of course it is. It's absolutely yeah, terrible. And we, uh, it's not me. I mean, yeah. it, every time we mention this, our phones light up with people giving out, saying it gets worse and worse yeah. and worse. Yeah. Totally contrary yeah. to your statement, which says it's improved over the last 20 years. Totally but, contrary yeah. to your statement, yeah. Yeah. which says that no. uh, you, you, you've brought this down to a minority of people yeah. who don't pick up. Totally contrary to your yeah. statement that says you're yeah. acting on it and the more you say yeah 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 and dismiss what I'm saying the more people will no, wonder the more people the more people will wonder is the council taking this serious or does the council want to be seen in a good light by putting forward gimmicks such as putting graffiti on the streets no the, the council want to tackle this issue we live in this council so like if people else, call you up will you will you follow somebody how, how will you you yeah. said you said if people yeah. call you up you will pursue it yeah. how will you yeah. pursue it yes the information, that, how we will do it is that the information that is given by the member of the public will be given to the warden to pursue. Based on the information given, we will pursue it. How many and we pe- are keen to that. How many people have you got doing this work in, in County Louth? We have six wardens, but they are litter wardens. They are, they are they litter are, wardens. Yeah, they are oh. litter wardens, yes. Mm. They are litter wardens, yeah. But in fairness, we are keen to tackle it with the resources we have and with the help of the communities out there. So you haven't got the wherewithal to pursue it? No, we have. In fairness, we don't get many complaints. The problem is, from our perspective, is 
as you will see there, like this month, we got six mm. complaints. And that results in, in, in obviously, if there's only six complaints, that only resulted in one fine. So we do need people to contact us with the information so that we can pursue these issues. Mm. And if the council is doing such a great job of cleaning the streets, why are people calling LMFM all of the time saying, I'm sick of walking in dog poo? I'm sick of wheeling my chair into dog poo? I'm sick of my buggy rolling over dog poo? No, what I'm saying is that over the years there has been a cultural change. 20 years ago, people did not carry a bag to lift up dog poo. They wouldn't even have considered it acceptable. Nowadays, people, most people do that as a matter of course. Most responsible people do that as a matter of course. But there are mm. certainly a percentage of people who do not do that. And that's who we want to tackle. And, so, and, and would you consider confiscating the dogs from those people? Well, that isn't a, that isn't a recourse that's currently legal. But it, it well, could be okay. introduced by a bylaw, could it not? Well, not no. In France, removing dogs is is a different from from the actual person is for different offences. It certainly wouldn't be for dog pulling. It do, would that would seem a little bit extreme for what we are talking about here. Okay, all right. Uh, we'll uh, leave there, and we'll ask people obviously to pick up after them and to heed. Yeah, we are uh, keen to do that and to report other people to the council if they do so. That'd okay. be great. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed, Catherine Duff, Director of Services with Louth County Council. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns uh, joins us with some of uh, the calls and text messages that have been coming to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael, and to everybody listening in. Some response in relation to the discussion around a united Ireland. Rory from Dundalk phoned in and he says it's now time for the doll to put in place a doll constitution on the future on Ireland. We are skirting around this the whole issue of a border poll. When is the time right? People are saying the time is not right, but when will it be right? The politician that you have on is right that a lot of uh, preparation needs to be done for this. Uh, The majority of people haven't really given much thought to what type of Ireland we want. But right now, what we need to be thinking is to get past the nitty gritty stages and to decide on whether or not we want a united Ireland and having that poll and then deciding, you know, mm. how we move forward, that we can all live together, prosper together together, and get on with our lives. All right, Sorry. it's two words that I haven't heard said together so often as I have in uh, the last number of weeks. United Ireland is certainly something uh, that people are talking about or a poll, a border poll to realise a united Ireland uh, as to whether that will happen or or not, I don't know, but there certainly seems to be a push towards testing it. Yes, well, according mm. to Rory, he says, Michael, it's not a matter of if there'll be a United Ireland at this stage, it's when it's going to happen. And also wanted to mention what constitutes a majority. 50% plus one. Mm. There you go. Des from Navin says that I've been listening to Leo Varadkar since he's become Taoiseach. I'm not Fianna Fáil either. I just want to say I vote for who I think is best at the time. But I don't think either Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael want a united Ireland. Because when you think about it, if there is a united Ireland, Michael, will they still be the two major parties? Hmm. Des is wondering. Well, it's an interesting question. I think uh, they'd certainly uh, hold uh, quite a a lot of uh, support uh, given uh, the population north and south. uh, What is it? About four million people in uh, the Republic and uh, a little over a million, a million and a half, Mm. I think, in the north. Yes. Mm -hmm. 
Michael says Tony from County Ledge on the matter of a border poll and a possible reunited Ireland I would not agree with Mr Varadkar that we should turn our constitution and way of life on its head to attract what effectively might be 500,000 unionist minded people in the present circumstances is it, is it, it is us that will be doing them a favour by creating, cer- creating circumstances in which they could remain in Europe and all the market advantages that that brings mm. to, to, so to say we should bend over backwards and probably throw money at them similar to what Britain does at the moment to make the matter attractive would not sit sit well with me says Tony or I suspect many others Okay, well let's not confuse what Mr Vradker did say he was uh, asked about this during a debate at Fela on Fubble with uh, the other panel members uh, in Belfast uh, during uh, the week and he said well look he said uh, it may not be the right time to hold a poll if you did uh, you may not succeed it would be divisive and even if you did succeed it could be by a small majority which could lead to the same type of mistakes made a hundred years ago at the time of partition uh, but the other way around as he put it uh, because it could be the unionists who are dragged into a state that they feel that they don't belong to so I'm not sure that he is pushing for a bowl but he has been talking about it a lot at the same time. Anyway speaking of uh, political parties uh, let's uh, talk with Fergal Blaney uh, who's a political correspondent for the Irish Daily Mirror who's been reporting on uh, the funding made available to political parties. A very good morning to you, Fergal, and thanks uh, for joining us here on uh, the programme uh, this morning. And the main focus morning, of your story in the paper today is Renua. I'm sure some people will remember Renua, but remind us of who they are because uh, they're not very representative in terms of uh, the amount of uh, seats uh, they hold in public office. No, people might need a quick reminder of who mm. Renewer uh, are or were, I suppose. They, they, were, they were founded in March 2015 and they, they trailed the blaze for a while. They were um, launched by Lucinda Creighton, who was a rising star, and Fina Gale herself, who left over the, uh, the Eighth Amendment issue. And she had two TDs along with her, Billy Timmons and Terence Flanagan, and they had up to 28 candidates in the 2016 election. But after that, it all fell flat. No candidate got elected, mm. and the three sitting TDs lost their seats. Uh, Lucinda Creighton left, and the party was left with some councillors, and it was uh, fairly aimless when it came to doll ambitions because they only uh, only put one forward at the last um, election, and in the general sorry in the local election recently, their last remaining uh, councillor John Leahy, Leahy um, was elected, but he subsequently left the party and is now running as an independent. Mm. But I suppose the point that we're raising today is that the party still receives considerable funding yep. under the rules for political party funding, and they are getting um, upwards of 1,000 euros a day still. A uh, total of 366,000 euro. 366,000 to 2018, the Standards and Public Office Commission report on political party funding was released yesterday. And the reason they get that is because the funding is based on the last general election that was held. And if you get, for instance, when we got 2% of the national vote of first preferences, and that entitles you to funding, uh, to fund your party's activities. So, for example, the Greens, who had um, a very, very good local elections, we can expect more first preference votes. In the last general election, their first preference votes entitled them to almost 400,398. Mm. Uh, similar numbers for people before profit and... Um, solidarity. Uh, the big boys then, of course, were Fina Gael and Fina Fall, who get over two million each just to fund their, their party activities, apart from a, another array of funding that they get for individual TDs. And, and that's state funding? That is state funding, yes. Yes, it comes from the taxpayer. Okay. And what do the political parties do with that money? Well, it's not meant to be for 
exact electoral uh, purposes. So they're not supposed to use it in general elections. But of course, there's always a loophole there. Mm. But you can use it to prepare. for. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. General elections. And they can put some money aside. For instance, um, the big parties would put 300 to 500,000 aside from last year's funding. And they would roll it over to this year because everyone thought there might be an election this year. Mm. And of course, we can expect them to do the same with the funding from this year when it comes to next year. So they'll be building a war chest for their election upcoming. Uh, the day-to-day spending of these uh, monies received, I suppose, they go on things, for instance, Renewa in their report showed that they spent 90000 on salaries for the party, uh, 58000 on consultants, and 28000 on the growing cost of social media and that era. Mm, it's interesting, isn't it? Because, uh, I mean, uh, all in all, it comes uh, to a grand total of €6 million, Euro, and I suppose in the overall context of government spending, uh, it's really not an awful lot of money, but I think there's a lot of people who could come up with a, a few things, a uh, few suggestions for the government to spend £6 million on. There are, of course, six million is a substantial amount of money in anyone's, in anyone's terms when it comes to the health service and for housing and the ongoing disputes in public pay where often they're, they're arguing over a couple of million and threatening to, to go on strike in many areas. So six million could go and do an awful lot of good in many other areas, many public representatives would say. 
Okay, Fergal, we leave there. Thank you very much indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Fergal Blaney, political correspondent for the Irish Daily Mirror. Now let's go back uh, to the phones and the texts that have been coming to us. Marie, you've got uh, some more comments there. I have indeed, Michael. On the cost of college accommodation, Catherine phoned in and she says, does this mean now, Michael, that we're going back down the road of where education is for the rich only or that as it was back in her day that only one child in the family may Maybe got to go to college if you were lucky enough. Maybe the eldest or sometimes it was the youngest. Mm. She says that in her case, her two grandsons are in college and there's another one waiting to go. And she says that both because they're not in colleges that are on bus routes have to pay for their accommodation. Not eligible to, for any grants because their father is self-employed and just over the limits. They're not mm. madly rich or anything like that. And she says that she fears that because of the costs and how much they are increasing, mm. that the third child will not be able to go to college. And she just thinks that this is such a backward step. She says that the parents are both that, that the mother has come back to work full time to fund their college education. And that uh, it really is terrible to see this happening. Yeah, well, I suppose college has always been expensive and uh, they had promised to get rid of the fees altogether. People would say there's uh, very expensive fees. Uh, I think on average, I read the other day, of around 4,000 uh, that students are paying. And then there's the likes of the accommodation and that. Uh, but I, I suppose uh, to some extent uh, in this part of the world, we're in the lucky position that a, a lot of the students can commute to a lot of the colleges, even if it's not on bus routes, they can organise lifts or get a car or do something else uh, but uh, it is undoubtedly a real obstacle in terms of uh, uh, availing of third level education. On dog fouling every oh, time because we have yeah. a couple. We've Did we get a couple of calls about that? So far uh, already the phones have been I thought we might have. And yeah, we've yeah, had lots yeah, of response yeah, in. Yeah. Uh, a Navin uh, lady phoned mm. in to say uh, just listening in and I just want mm. to mention that one morning last week 6 to six ten am I was dropping my son to the bus yep. coming up to the traffic lights in Navin observed a lady out walking a very large damnation dog mm. she allowed the dog to poo exactly outside the door of a new restaurant that has just opened. I watched it as I was parked and, you know, waited for the traffic lights. Couldn't believe it. I just thought to myself, this is a new restaurant, brand new business. Anybody that walks in there would be walking straight into this or the owners are going to arrive in and have to clean up. It's absolutely disgusting. I feel that councils should be doing more, that there should be more enforcement to stop people doing this. Yeah. Uh, last Tuesday evening, says another, I observed a lady outside a shop in Black Rock. So this is obviously in yep. County Louth with a dog. Uh, she stood watching the dog doing its poo, then just walked away, did absolutely nothing about it. Jack says, is that woman on having us on? There's dirt. That's what I dirt, asked her. Dog dirt everywhere, mm. litter all over mm. the place. Well, ring, just as well, the ditch them. and the grass grows. It mm. hides this, yeah. says Jack. Well, that's terrible as well. Quite often, uh, people will let dogs go in on green areas uh, that are there for play and recreation uh, and children uh, can't play in these places or they're somebody else's... piece of grass and they have to clean it up after them and all that sort of stuff. Uh, but the council are, are telling us this morning that if you see somebody allowing their dog to do that, if you ring them, they'll be arriving in no time, blue lights flashing. Uh, at least that was the impression that we got. 
Michael, why are you blaming the council? It's the lazy dog owners that you should be blaming. Mm. They are the ones I who do. stand there and let their dogs poo in the streets and don't give a toss about anybody that's coming behind them. Yeah, well, I, I do blame the dog owners and uh, I make no apologies for that. Uh, but uh, uh, what I'm saying is that there are laws in place and I'm asking the council, why don't they enforce those laws to make sure that those people can't do it? If that means confiscating the dogs, confiscate the dogs or do whatever is necessary. But stop it from happening. Joanne was also listening into that interview with Catherine Duff of uh, the County Council and she says that uh, she felt that Catherine made some good points that she does agree that there has been a sea change over the past number of years in our thinking and attitudes towards cleaning up after dogs that you do see a lot more people with bags and out and about but even though that there is progress Mm. a lot more needs to be done and the only way to achieve that is through enforcement Mm. Okay. Um, and one other one if I can get to it for the moment Mm. because I know time Mm. is running out Uh, we just had a male listener who phoned in and says it's all very well Michael to talk about enforcement but you need to have people who are willing to ring up and make a verbal complaint Mm. in the first place and a lot of people will not do that yeah well I don't blame them you know, because you're talking about complaining about somebody who has a mindset that they think it's all right to destroy somebody else's property, that they think it's all right to leave the streets in an awful mess. They are remarkable people. Uh, and if you're going to complain about them, you'd have to worry about what they think about you and what they might do to you. And that's the mm. point he's yeah, making. Absolutely. So it is yeah, yeah, black yeah, and white, mm, maybe. Yeah, yeah. So that's a flavour. I'm sure there's plenty more, yeah. Michael, when okay. I come back out there. All because right. when we discuss this, as you know, we yeah. always get plenty. Well, that's what I said to Catherine Duff when she was saying, look, it's improved so much over the last 20 years. Uh, the streets are much cleaner. I said, well, why is it that every time we talk about it, the phones light up? Uh, and uh, perhaps uh, people can call us and we can let the council know what you have to say. Or you can call the council because the council has said, have said, let us know. Call them and tell them that you have a problem with this, if you do have a problem. But if you don't, that's another thing. All right. All right. Thanks for that, Marie. Thanks, everybody, who has been in touch. And if you'd like to add to what's been said, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 1850-715-958. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, following uh, the murder of uh, 31 people in America over uh, the weekend, uh, there are a lot of people who believe uh, that Donald Trump must take some responsibility for the mass shootings uh, that took place in El Paso, Texas and Dayton, Ohio. Yesterday, the president visited both places. No, I don't blame Elizabeth Warren and I don't blame Bernie Sanders in the case of Ohio and I don't blame... Anybody, I, I blame. These are sick people. These are people that are really mentally ill, mentally disturbed. It's a mental problem. And we're going to be meeting. We're going to be meeting with members of Congress. Uh, I've already got meetings scheduled, and I have had plenty of talks over the last two days. And I think something's going to be come up with. We're going to come up with something that's going to be really very good beyond anything that's been done so far. Well, I'm looking to do background checks. I think background checks are important. I don't want to put guns into the hands of mentally unstable people or people with rage or hate, sick people. 
I don't want to, I'm all, I'm all in favour of it. President Trump speaking before he visited both cities where mass shooters attacked over the weekend. In Dayton, Ohio, he met with first responders, injured victims and families of the nine people killed in Sunday's nightclub district attack. He then flew to El Paso, Texas, where 22 people were killed at a Walmart by a man apparently targeting Mexicans and Hispanics. Racism and white supremacy did not start with Trump. But this is a clear example that highlights why our politicians need to care about the words they use. They need to address white supremacist violence in a way that protects communities of color like El Paso. These hate-filled policies are enacted right here in our community every day. This attack and everyone before it has been an assault on our right to exist. Today, on a day when our community is still in shock, still in mourning, and still recovering from this white supremacist terrorist attack, because that's what it is. On a day when Latinx communities across the country are afraid that they may be next. Today of all days, we must hold the president accountable for the pattern of racism that has defined his administration. National Public Radio has been reporting that the president received a mixed reaction. Here's Martin Kaist. Well, certainly elected officials here in El Paso have not been thrilled about this visit. The mayor, DiMargo, uh, was kind of deadpan on Monday when he talked to us uh, about the the coming presidential visit. Uh, he called it a formal duty as a mayor that he had to do. Uh, the Democrats here have outright said Trump was not welcome. The congresswoman from this area, Veronica Escobar, said that, as did the former congressman from El Paso, Beto O'Rourke, who's, of course, running for president. Uh, and there were protesters. They gathered in a park just a few blocks away from the hospital that the president visited. Um, the organizers they, th- of the rally said it was sort of about community resilience, but really it was anti-Trump. I mean, lots of people there holding signs, calling the president racist, saying he has blood on his hands. Uh, Carmen Sanchez is a retired nurse who brought a sign that said, please respect our pain, leave. He called us Hispanics, rapists, gangsters, criminals, and told the American people and the whole world that we are invading this country. He put a target on us. Despite the strong anti-Trump sentiment, Martin Kaist of NPR says that there is also support for the president in El Paso. Oh, absolutely. Even some Mexican-Americans here say they don't exactly necessarily accept this idea that he's a racist because he's uh, taking a hard line on illegal immigration and migrants. Um, earlier I, today, I talked to the local Republican Party uh, president of the local party here, Bob Pena. Uh, he accused Beto O'Rourke and other Democrats of exploiting these deaths for political gain. And he says this visit is just a kind of a no-win situation for the president. If he had not come, you would have had People saying, oh, my gosh, he's ignoring it. He's hiding from it. He's damned if he doesn't. He's damned if he doesn't. And, and Pena is a Mexican-American, and he thinks that the president's enemies have been purposely blurring the difference between legal and illegal immigration uh, to cast the president in bad light. But he's glad that Trump has focused attention on the migrant crisis on the border. 
He had the foresight three years ago to bring it to our attention, everybody's attention. We've been talking about it for years here in El Paso. That's why we're saying, thank God he's doing it. Opinion divided in El Paso and uh, the feelings on both sides are quite strong, but uh, there's been little in the way of trouble. Well, there have been a few flare-ups, sort of scuffles. Um, uh, I actually saw a, a scuffle between a small number of Trump supporters and anti-gun protesters a couple of nights ago, and there have been some tensions at the informal memorial that's been set up near the site of the shooting at the Walmart. Um, but in, generally speaking, I'd say the mood in the city is one more about mourning than political anger. It's, it's definitely a somber place here. Not, it's not about politics for most people. Meanwhile, in Dayton, Ohio, the president was inside the hospital while many people protested outside. But Mayor Nan Wheely says she believes that the first responders and the victims were happy to see the president in the hospital. I think the victims that um, that were in the hospital were super grateful for his visit. And uh, our first responders, you know, he's the president of the United States, they, they were happy to see him. But it was tough in the, in the city. You know, we had some skirmishes in the Oregon district of... Um, pro-Trump, anti-Trump. Well, certainly elected officials here in El Paso have not been thrilled about this visit. The mayor, DeMargo, uh, was kind of deadpan on Monday when he talked to us uh, about the the coming presidential visit. Uh, he called it a formal duty as a mayor that he had to do. Uh, the Democrats here have outright said Trump was not welcome. The congresswoman from this area, Veronica Escobar, said that, as did the former congressman from El Paso, Beto O'Rourke, who's, of course, running for president. Uh, and there were protesters. They gathered in a park just a few blocks away from the hospital that the president visited. Um, the organizers they, of the rally said it was sort of about community resilience, but really it was anti-Trump. I mean, lots of people there holding signs, calling the president racist, saying he has blood on his hands. Uh, Carmen Sanchez is a retired nurse who brought a sign that said, please respect our pain, leave. He called us Hispanics, rapists, gangsters, criminals, and told the American people and the whole world that we are invading this country. He put a target on us. Meanwhile, in Dayton, Ohio, the president was inside the hospital. Donald Trump described the day as a great day. We had an amazing day. As you know, we left Ohio and uh, the love, the respect for the office of the presidency. uh, It was I wish you could have been in there to see it. I wish you could have been in there. And it was no different. Came from the hospital. We were there. a lot longer than we were anticipated to be. It was supposed to be just a fairly quick. We met with numerous people. We met with also the doctors, the nurses, uh, the medical staff. Uh, they have done an incredible job. Both places, just incredible. And the the enthusiasm, the love, the respect, and also the telling me, let's see if we can get something done. And Republicans want to do it and Democrats want to do it. That's President uh, Donald Trump. Apologies, by the way, for some of uh, the loops in uh, that report. But the president is promising uh, that something will be done in uh, terms of changing the gun laws in America and following uh, the events of uh, the last weekend and indeed the 250 events since his presidency began. I'm sure many people will hope that that is the case. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie. 
the Taoiseach Leo Varadkar has uh, told insurance companies uh, that they have six months uh, to reduce what uh, they are charging and uh, if uh, premiums uh, don't come down in uh, that time frame uh, that the government will take action. Let's talk about this with Neil MacDonald who's uh, the Chief Executive Officer of ISME that's uh, the Irish Small and Medium Enterprises Association. A very good morning to you Neil and uh, thanks morning, for joining Michael. us. Uh, you're welcome to what Leo Varadkar has had to say. Yeah, we're delighted um, that at last he's, he appears to be introducing a note of urgency to one area of reform, but that's what we've just cautioned him. Uh, it's, it's one thing to threaten the insurers, but we know that this problem isn't just a problem for insurers. Uh, we have problems with the legal system. We have a problem uh, with uh, lawyers practicing in it. We have a problem with medical professionals. Uh, and the Taoiseach and the whole of government are going to have to start uh, being just as muscular with those other players in the industry as they're threatening to be with the insurers. But we like the time frame because we've been saying to government now um, for, for two years there are businesses going out of business right now. So don't bother telling us about things that are going to happen in 18 months or two years. We need you to act now. So you believe uh, there's lawyers and doctors who are working this flawed system for their own gain? Oh, there's no question. I mean, there have been a number of very interesting uh, rulings in the High Court lately that have shown, um, for instance, that solicitors and doctors are working uh, together. We've seen one case recently which was uh, dismissed in the High Court where a High Court judge um, said to an orthopaedic specialist uh, that he didn't understand why that doctor had taken instruction directly from a solicitor and not from a GP. Uh, and the judge couldn't get his head around why that had happened. I think we have a fairly good idea why that's happening uh, because, um, I mean, I've I've personally spoken to a a specialist, an orthopaedic specialist, who, albeit he acts for insurance companies, uh, but he very frankly told me, he said, I make a fortune out of defending insurance companies in these. There are vast amounts of money coming out of the pockets of policyholders and going into the pockets of of professionals um, Mm. such as uh, uh, solicitors, um, barristers and doctors. So it's not just that they're making money uh, out of claimants, uh, people who are making personal injury claims or whatever the claims are, uh, they're making money defending the insurance companies themselves. Uh, Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, This is an enormous merry-go-round that ultimately comes uh, is paid for uh, out of uh, out of the um, money provided by the insured, whether that's a private motorist or a small business or a restaurant or or a playground, uh, and and generally it it affects in general it affects all of us, and we're also paying through the nose for through the state because it's actually local authorities are finding it very hard now to get insurance for certain activities mm-hmm. as well. So anywhere that the current public liability disaster touches is costing us a fortune and we're not acting quickly enough to address it. So uh, do you think that uh, they're acting unethically uh, in that uh, they're deciding uh, to settle because that uh, seems uh, to be one of uh, the big problems in terms of what's being paid out, that they're not contesting these claims and that they're opting to settle because it continues the merry-go-round, as you put it earlier? It's it's very difficult to criticise um, 
we, we absolutely say to insurers that they need to uh, to fight more cases, even if there is a decent possibility they'll lose, because uh, it, only by contesting those dubious cases do the insurers put moral hazard on those dubious claimants. If you settle, you're actually encouraging them to do more. Now, the, now the, the the response we get when when we criticise the insurer that way is that our court system is far too ready to give out very large amounts of general damages, mm. um, and that is true. But that's why we need a multi-factor uh, uh, solution to this, and quantum for minor injuries in particular has to come down, and it has to come down quickly. And there's no sign that that junior minister uh, Michael Darcy. Uh, or our government has made any commitment to address the issue of reducing quantum in the short term. It seems as though this has become a business of sorts for some and you hear of pre-arranged car crashes and things like that. Uh, almost professional in the way that uh, they uh, approach it. Uh, uh, is it that you can make multiple claims uh, because they're being settled or are they recorded? I mean, if you're making the third claim of whiplash within three months, uh, will it be known that you claimed whiplash last month and the month before as well? Well, it, it won't be publicly known, um, but there is a database that operates within Insurance Ireland. Uh, so uh, the underwriters do share this data. The issue, however, is that, that access to that database and how it is controlled is under investigation by the European Commission for possible cartel-like behaviour. So it, it does appear, and uh, uh, this isn't an accusation, mm-hmm. I'm just uh, mm-hmm. telling you uh, what's, what's a statement yeah. back, Michael, that they are under investigation um, by the uh, EU Commission mm-hmm. because it... Because they won't uh, open that up to outside providers, underwriters, uh, uh, which is uh, blocking competition from coming into the market. Yes, in other words, that uh, a new entrant that wants to access, for instance, the car insurance market or the adventure playground market uh, has to be sponsored by an existing member of of that uh, insurance island grouping and and there are all sorts of questions about you know h- how free they are to use that data and, and all that sort of thing and that's why we've said that data needs to be obviously not in the public domain because it would include private data but that data does need to be accessible we we believe it should be under state control we believe it should be controlled by someone like either the central bank of ireland or the personal injuries uh, assessment board but it, it that data should not be compiled by um uh, private entities uh, and and controlled in in what are possibly dubious circumstances uh, and what seems remarkable now is that doesn't say it's a reality uh, what is remarkable now is that insurance isn't just unaffordable it's not a case of it being too expensive for many companies and types of businesses it's just not available they can't get insured that is you're putting your finger on the essential difficulty now which is there are certain sectors that underwriters won't go near at any price and this is why there is a fear factor among a lot of our members when I I, I know that you and other journalists like to talk to, to businesses directly and not, not to people like me but when I ask these people to go on the record and talk to the press they they, they I mean the persistent response I get is I've, I only have one underwriter and I'm not going 
going to do anything uh, uh, to sour my relationship with, with that underwriter because I'm out of business if I lose that underwriter. So there is an, an, an absolute fear in the market, uh, Michael, that the the underwriting market is thinning out. Insurers are leaving uh, the, the sector in Ireland. And that's that was the big caution we made to Leo Varadkar in that press release this week, which is, you know, if if you are labouring under the notion that Ireland is the Klondike for insurance companies, then why are insurance companies leaving the market? And unless you can give a sensible, educated, knowledgeable answer to that question, we suggest you need to go back and study it a little bit more deeply. Yeah, and why would insurance companies not want to do business here? I mean, uh, there's a, a lot of money. You'd always assume uh, that uh, insurance companies do very well. And if uh, they were to underwrite uh, something like a, a bouncy castle business or a pet farm, uh, you think, sure, there's no risk there in terms of the insurance company's position uh, because uh, if people do themselves an injury whilst they're at a, a pet farm or jumping on a bouncy castle, they'd do it at their own risk. Uh, and outside of a total disaster, the insurance company is never going to have to pay out to any claim. No, unfortunately, you've actually zoned in there, Michael, on two sectors that are actually becoming uninsurable. Um so on, 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 to the first part of your question, this is a lucrative market in the round for insurance companies and Ireland is a, is a very mature developed market and we, according to World Bank figures, we pay up to four times the European average per capita on insurance products. So there's an awful lot of money been paid by Irish people on insurance and in our view, you know, two to three times more than the equivalent person would pa- pay somewhere else in Europe. But Anything, unfortunately, anything to do with um, uh, adventure, mm. sports, hospitality, mm. uh, pubs, hotels. You saw AIG International is a major sponsor of sporting events mm. pulling out of the hotel sector. Mm. I mean, that's a real red flag for Ireland. Um, and uh, pet farms, bounty castles. Unfortunately, anything to do with children's activity or children's play is becoming extremely difficult to ensure because of the propensity of people to sue for even the most minor of occurrences. Mm, Linda Murray of uh, the Reform for Insurance Alliance told us that fun is almost prohibited in this country because you can't get insurance. And she did very well by effectively mm. farming and, and, you know, we're certainly looking at this in Ismi. She has effectively uh, formed a uh, a self-insured group, and and we we know that there are other. These are technically known as uh, captive insurance. Now she has managed to get external insurance, but if things continue to progress the way they are are going at the minute, uh, I I can see it is going to become a reality that uh, other groups of business in similar lines of trade, such as hospitality, such as hotels, such as adventure play, Mm. are actually going to form captive insurance uh, companies of their own and are going to self-insure if things don't change. Why can't you get insurance for a pet farm? I mean, are are people suing uh, because of the anxiety caused to a child after a sheep bleats? (laughs) Well, unfortunately, and you did allude to it earlier on, uh, that, you know, that that people acknowledge the risk of of going near animals. Uh, Unfortunately, 
if something happens, you know, if if mm. a donkey or a horse nibbles a, a child's finger, uh, despite the fact that that finger shouldn't be in the vicinity of the animal's mouth, it it still appears to be the case that uh, parents will sue. I mean, we had the ridiculous situation there last year. You may have seen us reporting it where a, a parent sued on behalf of a child where uh, that received ashes in school on Ash Wednesday and the ash remained in place for longer than a day or so mm-hmm. and they sued and they got €5,000. So because the kids we, in we school were, were slagging them, apparently. Yes, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah so yeah, yeah. We, and, and we don't have, we do not have a sustainable um, vision of what constitutes fair liability or negligence here. In theory, um, in theory, of course, in in legal theory, you can't succeed in an action against someone else unless you prove they're negligent. But that's theoretical only. In reality, we know that you know there are pr- plenty of people making fraudulent claims who get paid out because it's cheap. Because it's cheaper to settle. It, it's cheaper to settle. That's, but yeah. we, we, we we're always keen to point out that we believe fraud is a very small part of the problem. The much more significant part of the problem is the desire to exaggerate any form of claim in order to increase the quantum of payout. But the other thing is the really simple thing is the Occupier's Liability Act. And what what does negligence mean under that act? Well, effectively, in Irish law, if it happens on your premises, you're negligent. And and that's that's the essence, that's the core of what's wrong. If if we we call it the granny mm. test, would you sue your granny if it happened if if your slip trip or fall happened in her house uh, when when you say that to people they would say of course not but if it happens in a restaurant in a pub in a hotel or in a pet farm they have this view that oh well that's okay yeah. because I'm suing someone who's insured yeah well that's it uh, and uh, I suppose we've all become aware of it uh, the Taoiseach made his comments earlier in the week uh, but uh, the Taoiseach himself is being under fire obviously over the Maria Bailey uh, incident uh, and indeed uh, Minister Josepha Madigan's role or questioned role in that and what advice she may or may not have given has is me a position on uh, Fine Gael's approach to all of this uh, because Fine Gael seems divided itself about it well, to us, you see, the the whole lunacy of the, of Swingate and the Bailey case is that that really only captured media attention because it was about a politician who went to a lawyer who was also a politician. But to to us, it's very unfair actually to zone in on one person as as the the root of all evil. The the point we've been making now for the last, you know, I've been working this issue for the last four years. They, everybody's at it. You know, the, the, there are so many people who think it is okay to claim. I, I'm glad to say that mm. there there is an emerging consensus among members of the public that people who do this, uh, unless there's actually they, they have suffered a genuine, uh, real injury mm. as a result of someone else's genuine negligence, then they shouldn't claim. Well, every I, year when I get my insurance quote, whether it's for the house or the car or whatever, I think, oh, for God's sake, I wish they weren't at that because it might be a bit lower otherwise. Well, that's the thing. You, you and all other policyholders are carrying the rent 
the the rent that is attracted by this vast industry in this country um, that's involved around people. And I, I constantly at points pains to point out that people who are genuinely injured and and have suffered serious injury, we've asked, there's no question that a they deserve what they get and b the quantum is fair. What we're talking about is minor fully recovered injuries. A sprained thumb in this country is on the book of quantum today is worth €21,000. Now that is absurd. It makes our country a laughing stock and they are the sorts of uh, uh, and that is the sort of risk that people who supply you with insurance bear the risk of and that's why they're charging so much. If we are willing to accept much lower orders of quantum for minor injuries, not for life-changing injuries, not for catastrophic injuries, they, uh, we're very happy with the notion that they indeed go up but they make up such a tiny decimal of the overall insurance market that they're lost in the rounding. What The load you and I bear on every insurance policy we have is because of the ridiculous amounts of money we hand out for minor, minor injuries. Okay, Neil, thank you very much indeed for joining us today. Neil MacDonald, Chief Executive Officer of ISME, the Irish SME Association. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie now, the beef plan protests have uh, been going on for the bones of uh, a fortnight, have spread to about 22 factories at this stage. Nine of those are said to have stopped working, and it's understood uh, that three of the factories have laid off staff on a temporary basis. Let's uh, talk about uh, the ongoing protests with Edmund Phelan, who's uh, the president of the ICSA, the Irish Cattle and Sheep Farmers Association. Good morning to you, Edmund, and uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, does Beef Plan have uh, the support of the ICSA? Um, yes. Uh, this, this thing has been coming with years, uh, the, the bad prices farmers have been taking. So um, uh, it has been brewing. Um, we, it's not our protest, uh, but uh, everybody has a right to protest in, in all walks of life. But I think uh, the time is coming now that uh, we have to sit down and talk. Now, I believe overnight Minister Creed has offered... Um, talks and uh, so far it hasn't been accepted but I think now it's a time for cool heads and everybody sit around the table and see can we uh, to, to get out of this the impasse we're in at the moment. Do you believe the Minister's invitation to the Tullamore show should be withdrawn? Um, I don't know. It would be a pity if it has to be, but um, I don't want to see demonstrations at the Tullamore show. Um, you know, things can get out of hand where you can't control the situation. You know, there, there's a lot of um, pent-up anger there. Maybe it'll come to that, but I, I think we can have meetings before that and maybe to diffuse the situation. Do you believe that farmers should be allowed to get their livestock into the factories if that's what they want to do? Well, I, I presume I presume it can because I'm hearing different different sides. To well, we know story. that there are some blockades. Uh, there are some blockades. Yeah. No, I'm uh, I'm getting calls as you, as you can appreciate from both sides. Uh, yeah. People say that we have to come out fully in support of this, and other people ringing me saying, "Look, I have one man on saying that he has a bill to pay. Mm-hmm. That he was with ACC Bank. He has a loan repayment, and he, it's not ACC Bank anymore. Now it's a vulture fund o- owns the loan." If he defaults, he's in serious trouble and he can't get his cattle in. So, I mean, I feel for that guy. 
Now, you feel for him, but is he a yeah, scab? I think the story is true. We, do, we don't know whether it's true or not. Okay. But, uh, but, but if a farmer wants to pass the picket, is he a scab? Uh, possibly he is, but there are always circumstances, extenuating circumstances. But I think now is the time uh, that, that um, the, the hand has been reached out by, we say, the minister. I think the talks have to, have to be on today or tomorrow. Mm. But it, now, if I could make one suggestion, yeah. um, uh, I think Beef Plan said that they, they're not willing to uh, pull the, the protests to facilitate talks. But I think if meat industry will give give a commitment that they won't, if the if the pickets are lifted, that they won't bring cattle in during talks, I think maybe that might it might help. Mm. Okay, well, that would be very difficult for them to do, though, wouldn't it? Uh, because, uh, I mean, they're taking cattle in now if they can get them in. Uh, and the problem yeah, is, I, I, at some I of the factories, they're being blockaded. Sides, yeah, there yeah, has yeah, to be yeah, cool yeah. heads on both sides. I think um, if, the, if, the, if the pictures say, right, we, like they always can go back and protest tomorrow if things don't work out for them. But I think to facilitate talks, um, like normally you see in, in every walk of life, uh, unions, they're picketing a plant and uh, for talks they have to stand down for the moment. That seems to be fairly standard, so I think it'll have to come to that. But I think the meat industry will have to give the commitment that they won't fill the larages while talks going going on, because that will only exacerbate a very volatile situation already. It's terrible to see uh, how farmers are fighting against farmers, uh, and uh, in uh, the thrust of it all, four people have been injured as well over the course of the last couple of weeks. Yeah, um, it is terrible, and... Uh, that's why I say time has come that we have to fix it. But it, it's not just an Irish problem. I I was over in England yesterday meeting with, with English farmer unions, and I knew, I knew prices were bad, but I didn't realise their price is virtually the exact same as ours at the moment. Mm. I was surprised it was that low. They're generally 50 or 60 cents a head. Now, in England now, it's 310 sterling, which would equate to about 350 euros. So they're, they're on the same price at the moment. And. Where do you believe the solution to all of this lies? Obviously, if the farmers get more money, uh, that uh, might solve it. But how can that be achieved? Uh, I think the only way uh, that can be achieved is, and it's going to take, it's going to take a little bit of time for the market to balance out. But, but I think we have to, we have to reduce our production. Our production is is uh, too high at the moment. Uh, we say it's because of the. To my way of thinking, there's been a huge increase in, in, we say, dairy cows in the last three or four years. And every, every cow has a calf. It mightn't be the exact same as a, as a suckler calf, mm. but it's all beef. So I, I think that we have a glut at the moment. And consumption, for w- different reasons, are going down. Some of it, it may be the vegan movement. And uh, Joe, it, it, it all feeds in like a couple of percent extra production, a couple of cent percent less consumption. You, you do create a market imbalance. All right, and uh, obviously climate change as well, and uh, that will be added to by a major report which is being published today by the United Nations, which is calling on people to consume less red meat. Yeah, um, I don't. I haven't seen that particular report, but I don't particularly buy into that. Uh, uh, um, maybe people they are consuming slightly less. I don't agree with it, but what I certainly don't agree with is this Mercosur agreement where. You, um, sh- we say you reduce uh, production in in Ireland and Europe, and then just bring it in from South America. We all live in the same atmosphere, so if there is a problem in, in one area, it's it's the same somewhere else. And 
I, th- I think if, if I can just talk about Merckx mm. for one moment, that is just a plan. It has nothing to do with, with the planet or anything. It's to save BMW and Volkswagen and Renault and Citroën, which are all hurting at the moment. And it's to export cars to South America and bring in beef here. And that's the one reason for it. Okay. Uh, on climate change, uh, the United Nations report today is talking about the damage to the soil which uh, results uh, from farming cattle and I'm sure we'll be hearing more about that during the course of uh, the day uh, and indeed uh, over the course of the coming days because uh, it's uh, such an important issue to so many people now. But as things stand, we have an industry, uh, the agricultural industry, the beef farming industry, which is in real trouble uh, and uh, calls on the Minister to take action. Uh, can the Minister intervene directly uh, in this dispute? Well, he, he can facilitate things. Uh, there are a lot of things he can do. Uh, now, no Minister ever comes out and says that they can intervene on price. Now, whether they can or, mm. or not is, is up to themselves. But they can do a lot of things along the, around the edges. A, a huge problem which has been allowed by not just the minister but by government over the years is to allow, allow these huge monopolies to, to, um, to, 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 to become um, present here. Mm. We have three players controlling 80% or more of the market in Ireland. And funnily enough, as I found out in England yesterday, the same three players are controlling 75 to 80% in the UK as well. No coincidence there then in terms of uh, the prices being offered, I'm sure. All right, Edmund, I have to leave there because we've run out of time. But thank you for your time. Thank you for joining us as always. Edmund Phelan, President of the ICSA, the Irish Cattle and Sheep Farmers Association, brings our programme to its conclusion today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.